I know what some of you are thinking. It cannot possibly be Christmas. I have not yet seen snow on the ground. That's what's on everyone's mind. Um, I know that's on a few of the minds here. It is the weirdest thing. I, I'm still waiting for fall. I've lost about half the leaves on my bamboo plants in the back, but I don't know that, is that all the fall that we get? That's it, right? Like one palm frond dies, it gets slightly cooler, and then it just ramps up again for more beach days. I kind of like that. I think I'm, I'm, I'm committed to this process. Um, we are, whether it feels like it or not, coming up on the Christmas season, coming up on what um, many older denominations refer to as the Advent season, where we are looking forward to the birth of Jesus. And we are going to walk through a series um, that we've entitled The Untold Christmas Story. And it's going to be somewhat familiar, but maybe with some tweaks in there. And one of the things that I love, love, love about not growing up in the church is that I had virtually no background for what it meant to, to know this Bible story, the Christmas story. The stories were all new and fresh to me, uh, which is why I got in so much trouble in youth group and in my early ministry, because I didn't know the stories. Um, I, I think I might have shared this once before, but when I became a junior high pastor, the guy before me had quit, and he'd left to go on another church. I was just this loud, talkative kid, just graduated high school. I hadn't read the Bible yet, but because I talked so much, they said, hey, will you come be the, the pastor, the interim pastor for the junior high group? And I told them, look, I haven't finished the Bible yet. They said, that'll be okay. You just go in there and do your thing. I said, okay. And I walk in, and this is how wet behind the ears I was. I walk into these little minions of middle schoolers, and they go, whoa, you're like Goliath. Well, I hadn't got that far in the Bible yet. And I was like, I know this is a reference. The cartoons, God, what is going on? What is this reference, God? I don't know. And and I didn't know it. And that had to get my brain jogged. And I, at that point, I said, i got to rip through this thing and get all these kids' stories down because I didn't have flannel graphs. All I had was what the Bible told me. Now, in the Christmas season, we've all heard this story so many times. We've watched Charlie Brown so many times. We think that the Christmas story goes one way. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. Ready? On the count of three, without peeking at your neighbor, how many wise men were there? Now, some of you guys are like, trick question. And it is a trick question. It never says how many wise men there are. Gotcha. It says how many gifts there are. And there were three gifts, and there were multiple wise men, but we don't know how many there were. And that's just one example. So let's pray. We're going to jump into God's Word. It's going to be fun going through the untold Christmas story. Father, this time of year is so enjoyable for so many people. And God, you know my heart that I tend to be a Grinch. I pray that this year you would make it not so. Lord, as we all hang up our lights and buy our real trees or set up our fake trees, I pray that we would be filled with joy and thankfulness for all that you've done in sending Jesus, born as a baby, to come and save the world for the forgiveness of sins. Unpack and reveal truths in your word today. Change our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the story of the wise men today in Matthew chapter 2, story of the wise men. Man, these guys. Now before we get there, the wise men are also known as magi. Everyone say magi. I just think it sounds cool. I like to make people say things in large groups. Magi. These were the astrologers. These are the, the magicians, the, the thinkers of their time. So as you read it, I need you to know that these are outsiders. Let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1. And I'm just going to read all the way through verse 11, and then we'll come back. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. May God bless the reading of his word. Man, when you're a young, fresh into Christianity person, and you read about magi, when you read about wise men, um, it, it sort of conjures up this weird picture. And today we're going to look at a few things from this passage. One is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And that's not just a church word. That's a very powerful phrase of rulership and redemption, that he was coming to be the king of all kings. We're going to look at uh, that Christ is to be worshipped by all the nations of the world, and this is going to be represented by the Magi who came from the east. We don't know where they came from. could have been Babylon. could have been further. We're going to look at how God turns all things in the universe, all of history, toward the purpose of aiming people to seeing Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look at how when people do not believe in Jesus, that he is very troubling for them. We, there are worshipers of Jesus, there are those who are apathetic toward Jesus, and then there are those who are against Jesus. And lastly, we're going to look at how being connected and seeing Jesus leads to an incredible joy. So let's, let's start at the top. Messiah. What did it mean to be a Messiah? When I say that in this room, unless you're a Jewish person, you probably don't know what that is about. Messiah was not just a title. It's, it's where we do get the word in the Greek. It's the Christos. And in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, it's the Mashiach, the Messiah. And it carried this connotation of not just a king that would rule, but a king who would come and change everything up. A king who would come and do what earthly kings could not do. A king who would come in power over all other kingdoms. And this was Jesus. I love, I love thinking about the fact that Jesus was a baby. Sometimes we get caught up in the church stories and we forget. Like when I held uh, Lucy Louder, who now, how much does Lucy weigh today? 12 pounds. Isn't it weird to think that Jesus probably once weighed 12 pounds? The same voice that was whining for his mother's milk was also the voice that spoke creation into existence. That blows my mind. It blows my mind that there was a teenage girl who everyone in her village thought she was a hussy. I don't know if that's a bad word or not. Because she got pregnant out of wedlock and she said, God made me do it, you know? Um, and she had this baby walking around a village, a teenage girl holding the creator of all things, holding the savior of the world in her arms. And she knew it. As a first-time parent, I'm scared enough to drop my kids. And the first time you drop him, you're like, uh-oh. Like, what happens the first time you drop the creator of the world? Like, what sort of stress is that putting on you as a mother? I'm serious. we got to think about it because this is what's going on in this story now. The, the Messiah is being born. He is in 
flesh, and it's so easy to forget it because all that so many of us see when we think of Jesus is white 80s Jesus with rosy cheeks, a white robe, and a sash, and moose hair. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. He was a Jewish person who was the creator, not appealing that anybody would be drawn to him naturally, and this little teenage girl is trying to raise him to the best of her ability, and, and I don't know how you have that conversation. As a parent, we have hard conversations like, oh, well, kids, here's the birds and the bees. Like, that's the big one, right? Like, how do you sit down your son when he's eight or nine or ten and be like, well, son, you're the creator of the universe. You know, and he probably knew it. We know when he was 12, he already knew what was going on between him and God the Father. But this idea of Messiah, this little embryo, baby Jesus, was born 100% God, 100% human, and that's how it had to be for all of the sin payment to be done. That's how it had to be for him to enter into our existence so that he could then become our sacrificial lamb, the substitute for us. And then enter these magi, these wise men. When I taught um, Bible as an elective, I was a youth pastor, and uh, this church had a Bible teacher quit just a couple days before school. It was this, this Baptist private school, so they were calling people. They got my name from somewhere and said, hey, can you come teach Bible to 7th and 8th graders as like a, an elective course in school. I said, sure, I'd love to do that. I've never done that type of teaching before, like in a classroom. Uh, so I went in, and it was supposed to be like a nine-day stopgap. I ended up working there for a year and a half. But one of the things that was going on when I became a Bible teacher um, was that Harry Potter was just exploding at this time. We're talking like mid-Harry Potter series between book four and five. Like everyone was eating it up. And I'm now the Bible teacher at a conservative Baptist fundamentalist, and they don't put the fun in fundamentalist school. So I'm there, and one of the first weeks that I'm there, the parents approach me, and they say, uh, Miss, they call me Mr. T, no joke. They had no idea um, how much that just killed me on the inside, because <laughs> the kids asked, oh, can we call you Mr. T instead of Tirona? And I said, sure, but I'm not that guy. I don't have the Trihawk 100 Collect. And they were like, cuckoo. Like, who are you? They didn't know who he was, so the, all the parents called him Mr. T. Mr. T, we've got a problem. There's this whole Harry Potter thing going on. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard about it. I haven't read the books yet. And they said, well, we need you to tell our kids why reading and watching these Harry Potter movies is a sin. And I said, I can't do that. I've not yet seen nor read any of the Harry Potter things. But for your sake and as your children's Bible teacher, and because I care about their education, I will read Harry Potter to tell them what I think about it. So I got the first book. Oh, man. If you've never read Harry Potter and you're thinking, that's children's book, maybe. I don't know. But I don't remember sleeping for like a solid until all the books that were out were completely read. And I went back and, and I told the parents, I said, so I read all the books that are out. And, uh, and they said, yeah, are you, you going to do it now? I said, no. They were really good. I, I was into the, you couldn't have Expelliarmus, like there's spells and spiders, giant, they're so big. I was so into them. And, and then I started to realize, man, there's such weird like lenses in Christianity where we just block things off. We, we block off that when these magi come, they are magi, wise men from the east, following a star in the sky. They don't know much of the history, but, but you have to know for their era, their astrology was a big business. I mean, it's still big today. If you go on your app and you type in zodiac symbols, you can get your little uh, pumped up if you're an Aries every day. I'm an Aries, and I don't know what that means. Apparently, I'm angry and forceful. I'm like, maybe, I don't know, but they, I read sometimes the Cancer, the Gemini, I feel like I'm those two. I don't know. I'm not going to say whether that's right or wrong. No, it's wrong. But 
with the astrologers, these were guys that, that looked at the stars, and astrology was a big business. It, it just so happened that coincidentally, or not, maybe, maybe by God's design, when Julius Caesar died, there was a comet that went over during his funeral celebration. And that's big business. If you sell astrology memos, if you sell the Aries Zodiacs, and the Caesar dies and a comet goes over, I mean, that's social media 101. You take a picture of the comet, see what we do is true. You post that to Facebook, back whatever they had then, stone tablet book, and it just goes viral. Now, these magi were that type of people. They were Easterners, so they were non-Jewish people. They were star watchers, so they, these weren't the church people. These weren't Jews that had just been relocated somewhere else. These were total outsiders that the Jewish people would have looked at and said, unclean, uncircumcised, unworthy to be part of what's going on here in God's kingdom. But God says, this is who I'm going to bring in. And if you don't know, Matthew is the book. Uh, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are four Gospels, and they all have their own particular perspective. Uh, John tells us that if we wrote down all that Jesus did, it would fill up volumes and volumes. So each writer writes specifically toward an audience. Matthew is writing toward a Jewish audience, and it's almost like he has this little dagger dig. He just wants to let the Jews know, God is bigger than you think. And he does it over and over in the book of Matthew. When he's doing the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1, and he's saying all the people that Jesus came down from, he, he refers to all of the people that the Jewish people would have not wanted to hear. Oh, he came from David, and, and you remember Bathsheba, the, the affair on the roof? And don't forget Ruth, the Moabite, it's the outsider who's in Jesus' lineage, because Matthew wanted just to dig. And this is one of those little Hebrew digs. He wanted to say, look, Jewish people, God's plan is bigger than you think. And I want to say to you today, church people, God's plan is bigger than you think. There are many people that I've met in my Christian life that say, that person cannot be reached. This person, there's no way that they would ever come to church. There's no way that they would darken the doors of the church. And you have to know that I was one of those people. I was one of those people that said, I'm not going to go into church because God's going to strike me with lightning. I'm never going to darken the door of a church, and now I darken the doors of churches all the time. I've got to get out of here. The Magi, God wanted us to see that he is going to bring the outsiders in, the people that you would not expect, the people that have beliefs that you think are wild and crazy. And, and I know, because I do research and I ask people questions, I know that we're in this suburb community where we're striving after safety. 90% of us vote the same way. I'm going to tell you that Jesus does not care which political party you belong to or your neighbor belongs to or your friend belongs to or your cousin belongs to. Jesus doesn't care what religion the person is currently practicing. He wants you to know that he is for all nations, all peoples, and he will draw them to himself. One of the things that we must realize, especially in our culture, is that we talk about magi and miracles, and some of you are thinking, okay, astrology, I, I used to believe in it, I don't now, and, and the magi, and all this Christmas stuff, it just seems like, isn't it just a myth? Isn't this just something that these guys wrote down so we'd have a nice story, we could share presents, do the Santa thing, whatever, that's a different sermon, the Santa thing. And, and I don't think it is for a couple of reasons. One, if you're making up a story, you don't throw in people in the story that nobody would have wanted to see there. You're not going to say, well, I'm going to make up the story and get tons of people to follow, and the starting characters for this few chapters are going to be guys that nobody in my religion would want to ever hang out with, have dinner with, or share a cup of coffee with. They're going to be people who don't believe what we believe, don't look like what we look like, yet God is going to fold them in. 
And we have this notion, and we look back at the Bible, and we think, well, that's for then. This is like a different time. Like, okay, I get it. Zodiac things, different religions, but shouldn't we all just get along now, Ryan? There's so many religions, so many beliefs, so many perspectives. Can't we all just say, I'm just going to get along with everyone. I don't need to change anyone's mind. Well, that, it's good to say that until you realize one very startling truth. And I'll illustrate it with my own life first, and then we're going to put it on a cultural scale. I'm 34. I turn 35 uh, this next year. And every few years, I look back at my 30-year-old self, and I think that guy was a total idiot. The choices he made were so terrible. And when I was 30, I looked back at my 26-year-old self, and I thought, what was that guy thinking? And, and so often that repeats in my life, that I see God moving me along, and I see the thoughts that I once thought were the absolute truths were not really that brilliant at all. And in culture, it's the same way. We have this notion today that, that everyone should just have their own religion, that you should privatize religion, that these people do that, it's good for them, these people do that, it's good for them, and I do this, it's good for me. But God wants to break down those boundaries, and that very thought that what's good for them is good for them, what's good for me is good for me, that's a cultural trend of today. It's not an eternal trend for the ages. And, and if you've lived, as long as I've lived at least, because I know I've seen it, or longer, you've seen this world change in insane ways, right? So my first telephone went like this. Right now, everyone under 25 is like, what is he doing with the telephone? I'm telling you, it clicked at you, it had a tail, it had to be plugged into a wall. If you see those now, they're like dinosaurs. You have to go on Craigslist and they cost more because they're vintage. I remember getting a beeper. That's a short window. Like, you, if you're a certain age, like, you're not too old and not too young, if you had a beeper, you had a beeper and a couple of quarters and change in your pocket, because when your mama called, you had to call her back, but you had to find a payphone. FYI, a payphone are phones that used to be located in public spaces for people to use in the event of an emergency or just a casual call. And then we have cell phones. They start off big, and they get really small, and now they're getting really big again. And I don't call people on my phone, People call me and I'll text them, I'll call you back later, or can you text me, whatever you have to ask me. And we post pictures of ourselves. And then people say, what's next? Like, what is this world going to? And all, I'm saying all of this to show you that this world is changing and what is, what is one, one day cool will be uncool the next day. If you walked around today with one of the cell phones from the 90s, I mean, people would think you're making a funny YouTube video. And not only is it with cool and uncool, it's also with what is believed to be true and untrue. If, if I went back and teleported to the 50s and said, check this out, in 2015, these are the sexual ethics that rule the nation. People have sex with whoever they want to. There's a blurred gender lines. Like all this stuff is going on. Divorce is rampant. All these, they would not even believe me. They'd be like, there's no way. If I went back to the 1900s and said, you know the norm for uh, women that go to the beach is that they just wear like rubber bands that they get tangled up in. They'd be like, no way. I'm serious. Like, you just can't believe it. Culture changes so much. And, and I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Because whether it's cool, uncool, true, untrue, because we know that science has changed on things. It's come forward and it's re pulled back on different theories and beliefs about how the world operates because science ends at a point. Science, the scientific method ended like in ninth grade biology. And I'm not going to get in an argument with you today. You could send me every book and website. I'll put it in my uh, e spam in my email box or my trash if it's a piece of paper. Um, or I'll read it because I love you. 
All I'm saying is that these things change, and C.S. Lewis is brilliant. He said, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. We so often get caught up into what's going on around us that this must be the one true only way. What is astonishing, and this is why I love what I do, is that I can look back at guys like St. Augustine, like Jonathan Edwards, who were hundreds of years ago, St. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, Martin Luther, 500 years ago. We look back to the Bible, and the truths that they're getting at the core, like there are some differences, but the core truths are staying the same because they are eternally grounded truths. And those things are the reason why the church exists and Rome does not. Those things are the reason why in 500 years, the church will still be here and the United States probably will not. Those things are why the church and God's core doctrines, that song we sang with the creed, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, they're three in one. These core doctrines have stood the test of time and they are not going away anytime soon. And God, in the midst of all of the changes in our culture, wants us to know that he is here for the outsiders. He is here for those people who the church would normally not accept. I love this next part. They used, God used a star. Now, I know. I know in a group this size of people who were born in the church and some science lovers, some of you are thinking, dude, is this a sermon about the star? Because I've seen that documentary. I've hopped up on that website. I know how the comet was like, boom, boom, Venus, Jupiter, and they collided and made. That's not the point of this whole story. Like, it's cool. You can do that as a hobby. I've watched the DVDs. The point of this story, I think, is very simple. God uses everything to get people to Jesus. Everything. God uses stars in the sky. God uses planetary alignments. God uses historical figures who did not believe in him. One of my favorite characters in history is Alexander the Great. He was a young, prideful, brash general, a young buck. He conquered most of the known world. And this was right before Jesus was going to hit the scene. Right before Jesus was going to hit the scene, there was this young guy who saw this fragmented world and said, I'm going to have a drive to conquer everything. I'm going to pave roads, set up secure travel, and I'm going to teach everybody one language. And then he died. And then some time passed. And then Jesus came. And then the Apostle Paul comes. And the Apostle Paul lands in an era for the first time in history where there's massively travelable roads and a unified language security that goes along lots of these roads, an economic system that allowed him to travel from city to city to city, and that's when God chose to drop the gospel in. He said, well, there's roads, there's a language, I use that tool, Alexander, to do that, and now it's all set, Jesus, go for it. Jesus started the spark, and Paul lit the world on fire, and it's never been the same. In your life, God will use what you will not expect to get you to love Jesus. I, I love, uh, or used to love, I don't love them as much anymore, I used to love theological debates because you just talk about the Bible. A theological debate is where one person who thinks they know a lot about God yells at another person who thinks they know a lot about God and neither of them are acting at all like what God would want them to act like. And we were talking about the sovereignty of God because I'm a big like, God's so big, he's in charge of everything. And the person I was talking to was like, well, no, we've got this free will thing. And I'm like, no, man, God's free. We're just enslaved to sin. And then we start getting down to the nitty gritty. We got crazy in this conversation. This is how bad it went. At one point, I was saying that God ordains everything in the universe. 
And then the theological conversation was heated. And the other person says, so you're telling me that if one tiny ant walks across you right now, that God has ordained it to be so. And then I said, yes, because what if I pause to look at that one tiny ant and I'm five minutes late to my Starbucks meeting and someone in line comes in, I turn them to Jesus, they raise up a whole movement denomination. Boom! Once again, none of us acting like Jesus. God in your life, I don't think he wants us to be necessarily fearing or, or, or looking for just those things, but to know that as soon as a moment passes, that where you stand today, where you sit today, you are exactly where God wants you to be right now, and he loves you so much, he's not going to leave you right there. He loves you so much that he wants you to see when you walk out of here and you go to your parking lot, look around at the people that are there to love. When you get home today and you're feeling tired, look around at a way you can serve your spouse or your kids or your neighbor. When you go to a coffee shop named Foundation on Boyette anytime tomorrow between 9 and 10, buy a coffee for a stranger. And if he's tall and looks like me, then you'll know it was from the Lord. <laughs> I'm just saying. But, but be aware that God is always moving. When we do one thing, we, we set off little dominoes. Every time God does one thing, he's doing 100 million things simultaneously and all for one purpose, to point eyes and hearts and minds towards seeing Jesus either in this life or the next. That is why the world was created, to display the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. On a side note, and this is a very, very side note, I googled Bethlehem star science, those three words last night. No joke. It came up with 666,000 results. I thought, is that the number for that bad guy, Satan? I don't know. Next, Jesus is troubling to those who don't want to worship him. Notice who they went to, the wise men. They went to Herod, the king. They, I don't think they, the star led them like we see in all the shows. Like, I don't think they followed along. They saw a star, and there was already some prophecies and some things written in the pagan writings that there was going to be this mega-type king born. And they went to Herod and said, where's the king? We saw the star. We, we do this thing. It's our gig. Where is he? And then Herod calls the religious people. The religious people do something that is not shocking to me anymore, but it used to be shocking. They said, here's what the prophecy says, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, blah, 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 blah. And then it said the wise men go away. And what, what used to shock me was that the religious guys did not follow. If, if your whole religion has been waiting for this person and some crackpots from the east come and say, we saw a star, I think it's now, and everyone's in a stir in the city, the passage said. The religious people, these are the pastors, priests, bishops, whatever. They say, well, here's the prophecy. They give it to Herod. Herod does that. The wise men say, we're going to go. And the church folk go, we've got to get back to our potluck. I'm glad that Jesus is doing something, maybe. I'm glad that God's doing something, but it's not interesting enough to us. And the danger that we have today is that we lose sight of Jesus and it becomes about something else. That it would become about a church service. That it would become about just an activity. Everything that we do here is not an end in itself. Everything that we do is a means to point all of us toward knowing Jesus, being more faithful and following Jesus, and being more passionate worshipers of Jesus. That's why the sign is out there. The sign that just says, Jesus. It doesn't say, Ryan. 
I'm not against pastors on billboards, but you will never, never get my face on a billboard unless it's in a coffin on the billboard. Because I don't want this to be about me. I don't want this to be about you. I want this to be about Jesus breaking into sinners' lives, giving us forgiveness, and empowering us to then live for him. That's what the Christian, you can clap for Jesus all day long. I mean, that'd be the best sermon if I could just say Jesus and we just clap for 30 minutes and then just call it a day. The problem that I think so many of us run into is that it's, it's hard to follow Jesus because it means that we have to remind ourselves of the continual end of ourselves. It's hard to be in a relationship where you give someone nothing and he gives you everything. And that's what Jesus wants from us. That's the song he wants us to sing. God, I give you nothing. I'm so needy for you. And God says, I meet your need with all and more that you could ever ask for, desire, or have within you. He saved us from our sin and he fills us with his spirit. But for those who want to be in control, mostly for us religious people, it's really easy to say, well, Jesus is doing that. I'm just going to hang out here and do my normal thing. Jesus, yeah, there's some orphans and widows. Jesus, there's some hurting families. I need to clarify. I know we're in Fishhawk. Hurting families. So there's this really weird thing that happens so, sociologically. The poorer a family is, the more external and public the sins tend to be. So you go to a poorer neighborhood, you're going to see more graffiti, there's going to be more outward violence. You come to a neighborhood, this is just sociological, that's generally wealthier, sins are turned internal. So you, you go into houses in Fishhawk, you're not going to find as much gangbanging over in Osprey uh, Road. Like that's not the thing that's over there, they don't, have, they don't even have littering. But what you are going to find are people who are addicted to alcohol and to antidepressants and to pills. You're going to find marriages that are just crumbling under the weight of trying to perform and appear to be something they're not. You drive down to a different part of town, you're going to find marriages where, man, the husband and wife, they could fight with each other. There may be some bad sin going on, but they don't really have to pretend because all their sin's just right there. It's on the surface. And, and in the middle of this community, I, I need you to know that that temptation to pretend that you have it all together, like you, you're just not going to like being at this church for very long because I will regularly tell you how much I blow it and how much I'm not going to be the super pastor, how much I fail and sin in so many ways and that God loves me despite all of that and that you're in the same boat. My hope is that as time goes on, when people ask you, what is Christianity about? You don't say being good or being political, that your answer would be, it's the forgiveness of sins for a rotten sinner like me. I shared with someone this week the reality that I'm, you know we were made from dust, right, in that book of Genesis? Some people say, well, I don't believe that. Okay, you don't have to believe that, but we all go to dust. You can't argue with that. Like when I die, it's a matter of time. I'm dirt in the ground. Worms will eat my body. Morbid, sorry. So I tell people, like today, I am literally one dirt bag telling 150 other dirt bags about a God who loves them. That's all this is every week. One dirt bag telling 150 other dirt bags about a God who loves them, died for them, and forgave them of their sins. Lastly, I just want to point out what happens when you do meet this Jesus. Look at this phrase. This phrase I love. It's like the author failed grammar school in the first grade. 
when they saw Jesus, when the star was there, they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they knew where Jesus was, they didn't just rejoice exceedingly. They didn't just have great joy. They didn't just rejoice with joy. I think the author is trying to tell us something. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Some people in the church come in here, and it's like the, it's a funeral dirge of fear and shame. The song comes on about how God's all happy and pumped. And you guys, that last song that Jared sang, the only reason he couldn't jump around is because we had Old Man Turkey Bowl this Friday, and he's sore. He's probably on ibuprofen. But I was so pumped in the back, I didn't want to distract people, so I grabbed one of the littles, and I went back there. I said, dude, we're going to jump. He's like, yeah, let's jump. And he's like, my neck hurts. I'm like, you can jump. I'm sore from football. And we just jumped for Jesus. And the reason I jump is not because it's just got a sick beat, though it does, props on the drums, but because all that Jesus has done for us, that he would come to get the outsiders, the magi like them, and he would come get the, these little heathen kids who didn't know anything about God, and he would lure me to church with the wily ways of a Christian woman, and I would come to youth group and receive Jesus, and then talk about him, become a pastor, live in California where the weather's great, move to Florida where the weather's mostly great, and now I get to talk to you guys about this Jesus, and we can sing and dance and tell others about it. And some of you are thinking, I just don't have that rejoicing, exceedingly great joy. I want that. How do I get that? The first step is this. You have to realize that, that you have nothing to give to God. You come to God and say, God, I am in total need of you. And you begin to see where you fall short so that you can see how much God loves a wretch like me and you. Because that's when love will grip and melt your heart. It's not going to be when you've followed enough of the rules, finally you'll be like, I've achieved it, I've hidden all of my sins so that I only have internal sins now. The key is going to be when you say, I've been freed from shame and guilt because one died for me, this person so unworthy. That's when you're going to have joy upon joy upon joy. And I know some of you can be joyful because here's what I've seen on Facebook. Yes, I stalk you. There's a movie coming out called Star Wars. Exhibit A. Again, brother, I'm going to get you every week. People are so pumped for Star Wars. They do whoops and hollers. Any Star Wars nerds in here? Fans, sorry. Fans. People buy tickets like a month in advance. Some people have bought tickets to clear it, to buy the entire theater so they can watch it alone without teenagers. I don't blame them for that. That's probably godly. People are evangelizing for Star Wars all over the place because they love Star Wars. They have an exceedingly great, joyful, rejoicing attitude towards Star Wars. You know who else does this? CrossFit people. If you guys have ever met a CrossFit person, you'd know. They're more persistent than Mormon missionaries. Um, they have more joint problems than 75-year-old men. They pay an exorbitant amount of money to go throw like ropes around. But they're having a really good time. And they will tell you all about it. Great joy. Why is it sometimes that we don't have that? I think it's because we're like the scribes and the Pharisees. We're not looking to where Jesus is. He's not the apple of our eye. He's not the focus of our life. Rather, the focus is ourself and our comfort and our daily needs. And unlike the scribes and Pharisees, we need to be more like the Magi who will follow stars and will 
go to foreign lands, to go where Jesus tells us to go. Jesus might tell some of you to move out of Fishhawk. Jesus might tell some of you to move around the world. Jesus might tell some of you, as we talked about last week, to do something radical, to press in and create ministries that he's put on your heart and your heart alone, and he's waiting to unleash a floodgate of his power in your life. And he's up there waiting, and the sign next to him is, you have not because you ask not. Ask. I'm here and I'm ready. Be like the Magi this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your love for foreigners. God, as we take up our offering here shortly, I pray that this Christmas video would inspire us to love the real you, not the you of the, the wax museum nativity scenes, not the you of the 80s Jesus, but the God of the Bible who reached down for wretches like me and loves us despite ourselves, frees us from shame and guilt and finally gives us the peace our hearts are screaming for. God, I love you so much. Thanks for loving me when I feel unlovable. In Jesus' name, amen.